want to ask you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 50, that is page 634 in the Pew Bible, Jeremiah chapter 50. And uh, I'm going to be jumping around as we have been. We're going through a topical series. And so we're going to look at a number of different passages today as it relates to this theme that we're going to be preaching on, that I'll be preaching on. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. Let me just read the first line. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. Let me read that again. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of church leadership. Leadership. What it means to shepherd people toward Jesus. Let's pray together again. Father, I ask that you would help us as we get into this word that you would move in us, give us the ability to see Christ through His gift of leadership to your body. And I pray that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are as a result. Shape us. I pray that you would help me to speak not just my ideas, but your truths, that you would open our hearts to be shaped and fashioned according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your time from the mouth of babes. If you want me to hold, hold her, you know, I'd, I'd do a nice job. I'm a little bit of a baby whisperer, just so you know. I can calm any baby, except for Sevy. I could not calm Sevy. Leadership. That's the topic for, the, for today. If you were to start a coffee shop for the purpose of serving tasty caffeine to the community, you could organize that coffee shop and the leadership of that coffee shop a hundred different ways. You could organize it according to the ways of Starbucks or maybe something more bougie like ceremony coffee. If you were to open a barber shop, for the purpose of providing nice haircuts to make dudes look presentable, you could organize that barbershop a myriad of different ways. It could, be, it could be a one-man show. It could be designed as a co-op. If you were to start a nonprofit with the purpose of developing leadership programs for the purpo- uh, for development of people, you could organize that nonprofit a number of different ways. It could be led by a board. It could be led by an executive director who gives an account to the board. Now, what if God were to come to you and say, hey, you're going to start an entirely different kind of organization? An organization that you've never seen before. An organization that no one has ever done. 
the, the, the purpose of this organization is going to be like nothing else. The purpose of this organization is to display to the world who I am, God says. Do you think that you now have freedom to organize it however you want? Absolutely not. God regulates the church. God says, let me tell you how to structure the local church. The local church leadership, the local church structure, is something that we don't look to the business world for. It's not best practices. It's not what works or doesn't work, but rather God. God has designed, even in the structure of the church, something that displays who He is. And so therefore, healthy churches understand biblical leadership who leads the church. We're in a series called Peculiar People. And this is a topical series, uh, different than what we normally do, just walking through a book of the Bible is our usual pattern here. But we're doing a topical series, meaning we're taking a topic and looking all through the Scriptures to understand what the Bible teaches on that topic. This is a topical series on what is it that makes a healthy church. And so we have so far talked about preaching, expositional preaching. We've talked about right understanding of the gospel. We've talked about a right understanding of conversion. We've talked about membership and discipline, the topic of growth, as well as the topic of evangelism, how to rightly understand and practice evangelism. And today is part seven of our Peculiar People series, and that is this topic of church leadership. Healthy churches have a right understanding and practice of church leadership. Now, if we're going to be honest, for some, there's nothing more cringy to hear a talk about in church other than church leadership. If you're new to the church, you might be thinking, what, what did I just step into? I really don't care about the organizational structure of this church. Or even worse, for many, leadership itself is a suspicious kind of topic because we've seen leadership abused. We've seen authority abused. We've seen leaders who are leading out of a desire for self-service, leaders who are harsh in their leadership, leaders who are domineering, and there are entire movements today that are just throwing out the entire concept of authority and leadership and saying, let's just do away with all of it. Well, leadership abuse, harsh leadership, domineering leadership, is actually not new to humanity. If we were to go all the way back 2,000 years to the time when the New Testament was written, it was written in a context where there was leadership abuse that would make you just, just blown away. Leaders, Caesars, emperors, who are literally killing family members to maintain their power. And in this context, God doesn't do away with authority or leadership, but rather God says, this is how I want my church to be led. This is who ought to be leading my church. And there's something about God's design, even for the leadership of the church, which displays who He is, 
to the world. And so I hope, even if you're not a Christian, hearing a talk on church leadership today, that you might get a glimpse today into who God is and who Christ is for you. But let's start with this question. Why does leadership matter? Let's just begin with that. Biblically speaking, why does leadership matter? Keep your thumb in Jeremiah chapter 50, because we're going to turn right back there and turn to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, page 2 in the Pew Bible. Here in Genesis, or rather uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, let's skip to verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I go here first because I want to point out this simple fact that humans are wired to be led. We see it in the very beginning that Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, humans are led by God. They walk with God. And then something happens that is incredibly disastrous in chapter 3 of Genesis in which humans are no longer led by God, but they're first led by a serpent who is Satan. The serpent leads, and then Eve leads as she gives some to her husband who was with her, and the whole human race now spirals into darkness because of leadership. And even Adam, who's supposed to have this kind of loving leadership in Eve's life, will, as part of the curse, abuse his leadership as he will dominate and rule her. Even in the curse, not only do we see sin happening because of leadership, but leadership itself will be perverted because of sin, because of the curse of sin. Now God, we've been through this before, instead of wiping humans out off the face of the planet, God is a patient God, amen? Amen. And God is a redeeming God. Amen? And so God begins a redemption plan immediately. Now, we're going to fast forward here. Part of the redemption plan early on is this nation, state, family called Israel. And Israel has leadership. Initially, they were judges, led by judges, and they wanted a king. They got a king. They had prophets who spoke. They led speaking on behalf of God. They had priests who would represent the people on behalf of God. They had kings who would would, would, uh, uh, seek to protect and to lead the people and to act on God's behalf for the people. Now, this is kind of second part here, all right? So humans are wired to be led, but the second point I'm trying to draw out is that humans rise and fall based on leadership. What was it that then leads to the fall of Israel? Jeremiah 50. Can we go back there? You still had your finger there? Jeremiah 50, page 634. Jeremiah 50, what we see here in verse 6 and 7, I'll read it again to you. He says, My people 
have been lost sheep. Why? He says their shepherds have led them astray. Turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill, they've gone. They've forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them. And their enemies have said, we are not guilty for they have sinned against the Lord. Their habitation of righteousness, the Lord. The hope of their fathers. Meaning their enemies are saying, we're okay. We're in the clear because these people have abandoned their God. Why do they abandon their God? It's because their shepherds have led them astray. Shepherds there would be, in its context, referring to all of the, pro- uh, the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel. Meaning the whole of Israel's leadership has abandoned God and has led them to the mountains. Mountains here would be a reference to where Baal worshiping, uh, worship was happening. The Asherah poles were on the mountains. They're taking them away from the pure worship of God to the worship of idols. Bad shepherds who don't know their destination. Bad shepherds who, if there are green pastures out there, they don't know where they are, but they're lost, and instead they're leading the people to the rocks and the crags where they're going to stumble and where they're going to fall. And ultimately, verse 17, let's skip down. He says, Israel's a hunted sheep driven away by lions, devoured by beasts. And for some bad shepherds, it's not even ignorance, it's much worse. They know better. For some bad shepherds, they know what the Bible teaches. And they lead the sheep away from biblical faithfulness to make the Scriptures say something that they know the Scriptures don't say. And they do it for selfish purposes. And they're devouring sheep. Now, verse 19, what does God promise? Look at verse 19. He says, I will restore to his pasture. Meaning, God is saying that there's coming a day in which he will be the shepherd for the people and will restore his people to his pasture. God is saying there's coming a time when a chief shepherd will come who knows how to lead. And you guys can start saying some amens and hallelujahs at this point. How many of you know that the chief shepherd was born in a manger? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This shepherd came into the world and God took on human flesh and the chief shepherd led his people. The chief shepherd taught his people what it looks like to truly worship. The chief shepherd taught his people what it looks like to truly live. But even more, this shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Oh, greater love has no shepherd than this, than a shepherd lay down his life for his sheep. Oh, and sheep. Somebody say sheep. Yeah, that's the, that's the attitude I was talking about. Sheep. Do you guys know that the Bible calls us sheep? And you're thinking of like cute little sheep out of children's books, little lambs, so clean and cuddly, just want to sleep in my bed with me kind of sheep. No. Do you know what sheep are like? Like we're, we're Baltimore people. We don't mess with sheep. <laughs> So you don't know, all right? I don't either. I've just read about it. But sheep are dirty, filthy, nasty animals. Sheep drop excrement all over the place, and then they walk in it. 
all right? You don't want the sheep to come into your bed with you. I'm just telling you. This is not little lammy, all right? Also, sheep bite the hands of the shepherd who feeds them. They're, they're, they're unruly creatures. And they're also dumb. Sheep will literally walk off a cliff. It just looks like a good place to go, I guess. And they will die. A shepherd gives his life to guard and to protect and to lead his sheep. Oh, and Christ so loved the sheep that he was condemned in their place. He took on their filth onto his his own self. He bore their sin on his own shoulders as he walked up Mount Calvary and was nailed to an old rugged cross. This chief shepherd was on a mission. He was on a mission not just simply to teach us how to live a better life. He wasn't just simply on a mission to tell you how to be a moral person. He was on a mission to die for your sins. He was on a mission to take the judgment for his sheep on himself and to become the sacrificial lamb to die in their place. Yet this chief shepherd did not stay dead. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose victorious from the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. And then he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father and sent us the Holy Spirit who then called out the people. They believed the Gospel. He then shapes them into local churches in which this shepherd is the head. Not this shepherd. <laughs> I don't want to miscommunicate. Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, is the head of his church. All right, so I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. I'm still in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, go back to Jeremiah chapter 3. We were in Jeremiah 50. Just turn back to chapter 3 of Jeremiah, and I want you to see how leadership matters. People in rise, people rise and people fall based on leadership. And so what does God promise to his people on that day of redemption? In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, he says, and I will give you, this is a promise, this is, this is a, a promise looking forward to this messianic era. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So what he's promising is that in spite of the, the uh, bad shepherds who do not know where life is, leading the sheep toward idolatry and ruin, he's saying, I'm going to give you good shepherds after my own heart, meaning they share in God's concern for his people who will Feed them with knowledge and understanding, meaning that these shepherds will not lead for selfish purposes, but will lead for the benefit of God's people and will feed his people with the word of God. Unlike bad shepherds, good shepherds know where the destination is and they know how to get the sheep there. So that's the Old Testament vision for the leadership of the New Testament 
people. So let's turn to the New Testament. Let's go to page 589 in the New Testament toward the end of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. What we see is that leadership models. My second question here is, what does leadership look like? What does leadership look like for the church, for God's people? And what we see is that God gives his people what we call elders, pastors. In the ancient world, a chief shepherd may have hundreds of sheep, maybe thousands of sheep. And uh, the chief shepherd then would hire under-shepherds who would be employed to kind of section off some of those sheep into smaller flocks, and the under-shepherds would watch over the sheep that belongs to the chief shepherd. This is the picture that God gives us as He talks about the New Testament leadership of God's church, as He gives leaders to care, to teach, and to oversee, and to lead His flock. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Peter says, So I exhort the elders, everybody say elders, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherds, somebody say shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, is another word I want you to say, oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to, you, to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A few points of church leadership that we can draw from these four verses. Number one, God has called the church to be shepherded by elders, pastors, bishops. Those three terms are synonymous terms. In some churches, some traditions, uh, they might have like a bishop over here who's not necessarily a pastor nor an elder. And then they might have an elder or a group of elders that are not necessarily a pastor. And then they might have some staff people that they call pastor. Well, I think biblically, I think the most faithful way to read the New Testament is to understand that bishop, elder, and pastor are actually three synonymous terms for the same office, the same man, if you would. Meaning the, the elders of our church, you could call them bishop, you could call them pastor, and you can call them elder, or you can just call them Eric, all right, or Joel, all right. Um, uh, but but three terms referring meaning we wouldn't have like pastors who are not elders. Does that make sense? We would not have a uh, a bishop, you know, like the one guy that kind of oversees everything, um, without uh, understanding, recognizing that all of the elders are bishops. Uh, These are three synonymous terms for the one office. And I'll show this to you in the text. He actually says it here. This is just one example in the New Testament where you can draw this out. But it's a good example. He says, so I exhort the elders, verse 2. There's the word elders. He says, uh, oh, by the way, elders are always written in the plural, meaning churches should have more than one. Uh, Churches should be pastored by a plurality 
Plurality just simply means more than one, a group, two, three, four, five, twenty, whatever, a group of elders. Shepherd, the flock that is among you. Shepherd. Shepherd. That's the word pastor. That's the word there. So he's saying, I exhort the elders, pastor them. And then he goes on to say, exercising oversight, which is where we get the word bishop. So we see all three of these terms that are often used and that are used in the Bible to refer, refer to the church leadership. We, re, we actually see them here all referring to the same people who are called a group of elders who pastor and they bishop. Elders in our church are a personal blessing to my own ministry. I'm one of four elders in this church. We could have more, we could have less. There's not like a particular number, but our church has recognized as of today four elders, and they are a huge blessing to one another. And I'll just say personally, because I'm the one standing up here, to me. Like there's been times where we've been sitting in an elders meeting, and we get some pastoral situation, and I'm like, man, like I have no clue. I don't know. And then we talk through this, and, and, and I'm hearing the wisdom from other elders, and it just comes clear, and we come up with a resolution that I would never have come up with on my own. So the plurality of elders is a blessing to God's church. They are also servants, meaning they are not to lead for self-benefit. I often, in our basics class, membership class, I use the, uh, a, a dancing analogy. Um, if you've ever seen like ballroom dancing, um, you know, like fancy stuff, uh, my wife and I took one ballroom dance class and we perfected it, actually. And we were like, I think we're good. Well, let's move on to something else, you know? Uh, and uh, so then I got into uh, hip hop and taught Dawn how to do the SpongeBob and uh, she started Grace Bounds as a result. No, I'm just playing. Um, so in our one dance class, um, I learned that if I turn my hand like one way, my wife spins that way. If I turn my hand another way, my wife spins that way. All right. Who is it that leads on the dance floor? It's the husband, right? Or the man of you would. And so the husband's out there leading, but nobody says, oh, did you see them dance? Did you see how glorious Joel looked? Nobody ever says that about me. No, like, when, when, when husband and wife is dancing, who is it that gets the glory? Look how beautiful she is as she's spinning and doing her thing, and her dress is, you know, doing, going all over the place. Meaning, listen, yes, the husband is leading, but for whose benefit? Who's, whose glorification is he leading for? His wife's. He's leading so that she might look beautiful. So that her countenance might be lifted up. Uh, that's a great analogy, by the way, for marriage. We, I often use that in marriage counseling. But it also applies to the church because elders are to be uh, one of the qualifications. is godly husbands, godly fathers. And so in the same way, elders are to be, be these kinds of like husband-father figures that lay down their life, that serve the body, not for their benefit, but so that the church of God might be, but might be lifted up and the countenance might be great and they might be spinning and looking beautiful for their benefit. Are you with me? 
Where do we see this in the text? He says, verse 2, he says, not under compulsion. They don't do this because they're just, you know, I just have to do it. It's willing service. He goes on to say, not for shameful gain. Elders cannot serve for personal, uh, uh, selfish, shameful, self-centered, self-glorifying kinds of ways. Meaning pastoring is not glamorous. It's service. Why do we need to understand that pastoring is not glamorous? Well, sometimes people misunderstand what pastors should do. Sometimes people try to lift up the pastor. You know, this is so-and-so's church. He's kind of the man. He's, He's the glorified one. Sometimes people want their pastor to be driving the nicest cars. That's why you guys put me in a 2008 Altima. Just playing with you. That was my decision. (laughs) Pastoring is sometimes misunderstood. Tony Evans explains it this way. He says that people's expectations of their leaders are not always biblically grounded. And so they bring all the church's work to the leader's doors and leave it there. There's challenges that pastors can face to where they can take on too much. And I'm not just referring to myself, but just in general and, and the plurality of elders. Pastors should do it. There can be unrealistic expectations. Kent Hughes writes, summarizes unrealistic unrealistic expectations in this way. He says the idea, uh, I'm sorry, the ideal, can't read, the ideal pastor, he says, is always casual but never underdressed. He is warm and friendly but not too familiar. He's humorous but not funny. He visits with his members but is never out of the office. He's an expository preacher, but his sermons are always profound, yet comprehensible. He condemns sin, yet he's always positive. He has a family of ordinary people who never sin. And he has two eyes, one brown and one blue. He's saying that often churches can have unrealistic expectations that are put onto pastors. Sometimes sheep bite. You know, sometimes... Sheep bite the hands of the ones who feed them, and it can hurt. Uh, leadership bears criticism, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes true, sometimes false. But a, you know, if, if any of you have ever been in any kind of leadership role, what you understand is that as soon as you step into that role, you bear the criticism of that organization. Leaders bear criticism. If you've ever heard any criticism of me, just raise your hand. No, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> But what I would, if I actually had you follow through with that, all right, um, I bet you everybody would raise your hand. <laughs> There's always plenty of criticism to go around, you know? Um, I'm, I'm often criticized. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's false. Usually it's probably a mixture of both to some degree. But There's always plenty of criticism to go around. How do I deal with it? Well, I deal with it in this way. This is my secret, by the way, if you don't like criticism. For every one, thing, one bad thing that you can say about me, I can say two bad things about me. I actually know more bad stuff about myself than you do. I'm far more of a sinner 
Jesus has saved me from so much. Meaning, uh, leaders are not perfect. And that's partly what makes leadership tough, is because I do lead with imperfections. You know, I do have my blind spots and my oversights. Therefore, pastors cannot lead for a pat on the back. An elder who try, wants to get into it for a pat on the back will quickly get out of it. It cannot be done for shameful gain. If it is, they will pervert the ministry of church leadership. And it will become uh, something of self-service where they hide and they just try to take or they will just quit. They will be crushed. Number three, elders are under-shepherds. Elders are under-shepherds. Verse 2, this is not their own flock that they're given to shepherd. Verse 4, when the chief shepherd returns, they will be rewarded. Meaning the sheep that a pastor has are not his people. They're not his sheep. He's, he's merely a steward of the sheep of the great shepherd. He's actually one of the sheep. Just called out to be an under-shepherd. Hebrews 13 tells us that elders will give an account to the chief shepherd as to how they pastored. Also, fourthly, uh, pastors must be gentle in their leadership. They must not be dominant, uh, or domineering rather, they must not be controlling, but rather they are to be examples to the flock. Verse 3, he says, not domineering, but being examples to the sheep. Meaning, pastors have been given the power of persuasion, but they do not have the power of control. Meaning, I can seek to persuade you toward biblical faithfulness, but I can't actually make you faithful. You know? Meaning I could encourage you, let's just say, take something as simple as church attendance as Tim is walking out. <laughs> I could encourage Tim, hey, come back in. <laughs> you know? But I can't grab him and bring him in. We have the power of persuasion, but not control. But this also uh, uh, refers to our own ideas our own preferences, our own opinions. Meaning, a pastor, yes, he can command things as he's standing on the Word of God and as he's commanding on behalf of God, but a pastor cannot command his, his opinions. A pastor cannot command his preferences. Are you with me? And so therefore, elders must be gentle in their leadership. Lead by example. Lead by persuasion. And, and this is humbling for elders in the room, elders will influence. They will influence. The Bidi Anyabuile put it like this. He said, leaders will inevitably press their own character onto the congregation. We will be modeling and teaching things that cause, uh, cause many in the congregation to look like us. And he goes on to say, warning, he says, that's great insofar as we look like Christ. 
It's disastrous if we don't. And so therefore, elders must be qualified. They must be qualified. Now even, I want to go back to something I said earlier. You know, I know two things bad about me that you don't know. <laughs> Somebody in the room is thinking like, whoa, what secrets does he have? That's not what I mean. Elders must be people who can confess their sins to somebody, you know, to, to people, to brothers, to, to each other, uh, to seek, to strive, to, to walk together in, in uh, Christ-likeness and in accountability with each other. Why? It's because elders must be qualified. So in 1 T- Timothy chapter 3, and we won't go there, but there's a list of qualifications for elders. Titus chapter 1, there's a list of qualifications for elders. Who is it that should be leading local churches? They should be a qualified man. I won't give the name of a church, but I know of a church where uh, they they have a very powerful leader who some years ago had uh, numerous affairs with numerous different women. And he was so important to the life of this church that they dealt with it internally and he remained in the pulpit. Listen, if he is even a brother in Christ, he is no longer qualified to be a pastor of that church. And if his church must suffer and even close as a result of his departure, let it be. Lest we have an unqualified man leading God's people. Leaders must be qualified according to Scripture. So how do we determine who the elders are? Well, we have four that are already recognized, and we can have more. I encourage people often, think about who are the people in this church that are already eldering? You know, who are the men that are serving well at home and uh, as fathers, as husbands? Who are those that are already serving the body of Christ? And then we should recognize them as elders as they are qualified according to Scripture. Meaning, we don't make elders, we just recognize elders. Are you with me? Uh, I can't make any more elders in this room, you can't make any elders. God actually makes elders. And the church recognizes them and appoints them and says, hey, we're going to understand this person to be one of our elders. All right. That's elders. Are you with me still? I know we're kind of like going through the trenches of church leadership now. We got another, I, I would be unwise, especially with Chuck Davies here, to not mention deacons. Amen, Chuck? God has given a second office to the local church, and that is the office of deacon. Churches are led by elders, and churches are served by a team of deacons. Now, deacons goes back to Acts chapter 7. Don't turn there. I'm just briefly mentioning it. Mentioning it in Acts chapter 7, we see the initiation of the deacon office in which there are a whole bunch of widows out of maybe thousands of people who are not eating due to a matter of injustice. And the apostles say, we can't let this go on. These needs matter. But they say, we would be wrong to abandon the ministry of the word to wait on tables. And so, therefore, they say, appoint among you seven elders. And so they choose seven elders who are uh, godly uh, people uh, filled with wisdom. 
And they have this delegated authority then to the apostles. And so think of el- uh, deacons as a delegated authority under the overall leadership of the elders. And they are to, to wait on tables in the original context to meet needs. That word deacon, does anybody know what it means? We're like in class now. It means servant. Diakonos. De- servant. Now servant can be seen as a positive thing here. Oh, you're such a servant. We say that positively. You would have never said that in a positive way back 2,000 years ago when the Bible was written. Historian John Dickerson, he, he points out how b- back in this, this culture, in the ancient Greek world, the idea of serving somebody was shameful. You would not have served somebody. Uh, people would serve, he points out, a king or an emperor because if you don't serve the emperor, you will die. But you would never serve your equal. And as a matter of fact, if you served your equal, they would look at you like morally suspicious. There's something wrong with you. That is a shameful thing to do. Do you understand that when Jesus came, he completely redefined the idea of servant? This is what uh, John Dickinson, Dickerson points out. Is how It's in a book called Humility or Humilitas. And he points out how during uh, uh, this era, the whole concept of humility and service was turned on its head. Globally. Spread from there. Because of Jesus. That's why today we think humility is a good thing. It's because of Jesus. That's why today we think of service as a good thing. It's because of Jesus. Let me give you an example of how Jesus does this. In Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus has this uh, engagement with uh, this mama of two boys that are followers of his, his disciples, James and John. And mama comes to Jesus and she says, hey, I just want to make sure that my boys are going to be great. My goal is to make sure that when you're lifted up in your kingdom and you're ruling and reigning, that I got one of my boys on your right and one of my boys on your left. And Jesus says, woman, you have no clue what you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, they will be there. They will be. But what does he say? He goes on in verse 25 and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great, ones, their great ones exercise authority over them. This is what John Dickinson is pointing, at, pointing to. In this world, their great ones are lords. Their great ones are people that take advantage of each other. They're people who control each other. They're people who would kill their own family to preserve their own sense of power. And that in the ancient world was seen as commendable and great. And Jesus says, verse 26, it shall not be among you. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your deacon. That's what he says. Servant, diakonos. Service. Redefined by Jesus Christ. So what do deacons do? Deacons are people in the church who are appointed by the church. They're recognized publicly by the church as servants of the church, and they lead ministry. We see this happening in Acts 7, where they're given the responsibility to feed probably thousands of widows. They lead ministry. Now, it's important to recognize that they don't do all the ministry. If you're a deacon in the church and you feel like you're doing all the ministry, you need to recognize we should be delegating ministry. We should be leading ministry. If you think the deacons should be doing everything, church, No, they should be organizing you to do the work of ministry. Are you with me? Meaning, think about the seven deacons uh, in in Acts. 
There is no way that those seven guys were cooking, doing all the cooking, uh, doing all the table waiting. You know, they, they had teams, maybe hundreds of people working as teams underneath them. A delegated authority, and then they were delegating authority. Deacons then lead ministry. We also discover here that physical needs actually matter. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, don't worry about mouths that need to be fed. Don't worry about the poor. Don't worry about the physical needs. Just focus on the Word. No, physical needs actually matter to God. And so God places an entire office in the church to meet physical uh, needs. As an application, our church is blessed by a team of deacons. Who are they? They too have to be qualified. We believe that deacons are both men and women who are qualified according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. People who are filled with integrity, not given to drunkenness, they're wise, sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in the faith, tested before recognized. And then they lead various ministries. And we need more deacons. Maybe God is calling you to consider a calling to be a deacon. Elders and deacons. I'm almost done, but let me just say one, ask one more question, give one more thought before we close. The question is this, where do leaders lead? Where are we leading? What's the goal? Where's the destination? And Tony, where are you at, man? This is like your cue to say, Jesus. There you go. That's when you say it. <laughs> there we go. Where do leaders lead? There we go. Thank you, Tony. Leadership magnifies Jesus. Leadership magnifies our Savior, our Christ. Meaning, elders don't just support Joel. You know what I'm saying? Like, elders don't just serve you. Elders serve Christ. Deacons don't just simply serve the kids or serve the sound team or serve the poor, but deacons serve Christ. Yes. Meaning, even as I'm preaching here, I'm trying to not magnify church leadership as much as I'm trying to magnify Christ. Because Jesus is the greatest prophet who spoke the very words of God. Jesus is the greatest priest who represents us before God. Jesus is the greatest king who leads and protects his people. Oh, where the prophet, priests, and kings of old failed, Jesus is the prophet and the priest and the king who is also the greatest sacrifice. The priest who not only performed a sacrifice, but the priest who became the lamb of the sacrifice. The substitutionary one. Jesus is the greatest warrior who got up from the dead and one day is coming with victory. Jesus is the greatest deacon, amen? amen. Though the world was made uh, through him, he humbled himself, he made himself of no reputation, he took on the form of a, of a deacon, of a servant. He came into this ruthless world and this world did not know him. This world put him on a cross. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve, to lay his life down, to save you. He's the greatest bishop of all. 
the overseer of our souls. He's the greatest elder of all, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. He's the greatest pastor of all, of all, our shepherd. I wonder if anybody knows the, the, that the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Is He your shepherd, church? Is He your chief shepherd? I shall not want. Can you praise Him for leading you to green pastures? Church, give Him the glory that He stills waters in the midst of a storm. I wonder if anybody can praise Him for restoring your soul. Can you give Him glory for leading you in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake? Oh, and even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you have no need to fear because this shepherd is with you. His rod and His staff, they will protect you and they comfort you. And He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. So surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell. Come on, somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. I will dwell. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. For how long, church? Forever. Forever. And so turn your eyes to Jesus. Fix your eyes upon this one. Fix your eyes on this shepherd, this leader. What a shepherd he is. What a leader he is. He is your only hope. He is your, your only guide who has loved us in such a way that He's given us the church and under-shepherds and deacons to represent Him, our guide, as He leads us to fountains of living water. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ who has served us, who has led us. Our shepherd, the chief shepherd, the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 50, as you have led us to your pastures. God, I pray for our church that you would continue to grow us, that we would continue to be made into more and more of a healthy church with healthy leadership. That we would have more elders and more deacons. Not for our glory, not to magnify us, but that Christ might be magnified in our midst. That the lost might see Him and be saved. That the outsider might come in and drink freely, without cost, without money, coming to these waters of salvation. For our good and for your glory, we pray, God. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.